0: you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks hi welcome to the sunday chops a special edition of jenny off the blocks a few weeks ago i was at the edinburgh fringe where claire balding was also and i was lucky enough to have a little natter with her about lots of things actually firstly about women's sport about her experience at the Women's Euros this summer, about exciting times for women's sports and the kind of things we might expect to see in the future. We also talked about being a national treasure, at least I think she might be a national treasure. She wasn't so convinced, to be fair. And we also talked about her new children's book, which is the follow-up to her first children's book, The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop. And this one is called the racehorse who disappeared and i read the first one and it's absolutely lovely i hope you enjoy it i am here with claire balding i'm a bit nervous
1: actually claire because i'm a little bit nervous because you do this job for a living and you are considerably more experienced than I am, and you're sort of who I want to
2: be when I grow up. Oh, so, that's nice. So oh, I explain. love... No, that's, that's a very good way to start. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously immediately taking the sort of... You're like a dog who's just rolled over on its back and said, tickle my tummy, please, and then lick my <laughs> hand, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's very sweet.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to have uh,
2: done that already.
1: Thank you. So that's, that's a cracking start. I am going to call you a national treasure, Claire, because I think you're making a face at me and I know that's probably like slightly uncomfortable to hear in some respects, but I think it's fair to say because you are a woman who talks about sport for a living and
2: people seem to be largely okay with that. So, I want
1: to know, Claire, <laughs> what I is think... your secret? Well,
2: I know. I think you have to do a lot more than that to be regarded as a national treasure. I also think you have to have worked in the, your chosen industry for at least 50 years before you get that. But I was doing something for the National Trust recently. I was doing the, their podcast for their Prejudice and Pride season, and I was, one of the guys there said, but you're a national treasure. And I said, no, I'm not. But if you wanted to do National Trust treasures and you had a rotating list of like 20 every year, I'd work really hard to get on it to get free National Trust membership for a year. And he looked at me and he went, that's a really good idea. I said, you can have it, you can have it. I said, in fact, <laughs> I can suggest your first 20, but you need promotion and relegation to make this quite competitive. So, Judy Dench is straight in, but she might get relegated at the end of the year, you know, if she actually gets caught shoplifting like Tracy Ullman depicts her. <laughs> you know, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> no, exactly, and Helen Mirren obviously straight in there, um, and there are loads of others, but I would, you, you know, I'd be fighting with... I don't know, Catlin Moran and um, Kate Winslet for the spot at the bottom, you know? Get in. But none of those people
1: presented what is, I'm going to say, the jewel in the crown of British sports, and that was the London 2012 Olympics.
2: Yeah, but Sue Barker did and Gabby Logan did. So you see, I've got to fight them off as well. And, and we're all quite competitive because obviously Sue was a professional sportsman, Gabby went to Commonwealth Games as a gymnast i never did anything particularly impressive but i'm still really competitive well you know i'd pay to see that
1: fight i, <laughs> I wouldn't really uh, that would be weird be, wouldn't it it'd be,
2: but it'd be a really nice fight because we all really like each other so it would be a slightly after you fight and then you know you'd have to argue your case you'd have to debate your case i think it could be this could be really good in fact it's a really good podcast idea you, you can have that Thank you. Who
1: would win out of you, Sue Barker and Gabby Logan? Are you you prepared to give me a view on that? Well,
2: I tell you this. I did at the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne... I, I was doing my homework on on the flight out and I'd done a bit before I left and get there and we got two days and Sue's there at the same time as me and and I said to Sue Barker, I said right, well let's test each other she said fine, she said but we're going to do this in style, we shall take a river a, a river boat on the River Yarra and we took a mutual friend of ours with, with us and she was the one doing the test for both of us and the loser had to take the winner for lunch and i'll tell you this and this says a lot about sue barker she not only won she also paid for lunch so i lost and i should have paid for lunch and she picked up the tab and i thought that was really very cool <laughs> so
1: are we saying sue barker's yeah. a winner in in, yeah. in many ways yeah. here
2: yeah she she gets definitely the first year she she's in first and then gabby and i will wait and you know let's okay. see how we get on
1: well seamlessly segueing from this uh, group of amazing women presenting sport and talking about sport and doing rather well at it i just wanted to ask you a bit about how you got into that world in the first place
2: my dad was a racehorse trainer so i grew up surrounded by horses and he also was an all-round sportsman so he played rugby union to a high level he played quite a lot of cricket he took up golf late in life was pretty good at it the only thing he was terrifyingly bad at was skiing i mean seriously you couldn't even be on the same mountain as him he would he'd take out children and, and my mother refused to go on a lift with him because he'd knock her over every time they got off the lift. In fact, she, she li- literally went to a different resort. And we didn't go skiing until we were, me and Andrew were, I don't know, 12 and 10 or something. We weren't little, tiny, little bombers around. But my dad decided that he would be a good skier, and he really wasn't and it was terrifying but everything else he was very good at so to have a conversation with him I had to watch a lot of cricket to know what to talk to him about or watch a lot of rugby or watch the golf and therefore I got interested in it really as a way of desperately seeking his attention (laughs) and then and then I was mad for horses so I wanted to go to the Olympics and ride as a as an event rider that was my aim but that's a very expensive thing to try and do and yeah it's not that's that's not a way to make a living unless you're unless you're a really good dealer in horses actually that's how most of them make their living because there's no prize money in it so it's yeah it's an expensive hobby for a lot of people and then i went off to university i read english i i desperately wanted to write and I got a job on a newspaper. Um, so the first thing I did was I, I worked for The Sporting Life back in, I don't know, 94 or something. And I wrote columns for them about Sunday racing, which had just started. And then I got I got asked to do a voice test um, for Five Live. Somebody said to me, have you thought about radio? And they were looking at me really intently. And it was a man. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be really awkward. Because he's looking at me really strangely. Something He's going to ask me something in a minute. And I, I don't know what to say. And then he said, have you thought about using your voice? And I said, no. He said, well, come in and do a voice test. I need to hear you on a microphone. He said, you've got a very deep pitch, and that might work very well for radio. And that was it. So I started doing racing bulletins, and then I was a trainee in BBC Sport and did all sorts of other things. They took me away from racing completely and said, well, you can do everything else but not racing. We want you so far out of your comfort zone that we work out whether you're any good or not. And that's what they did. Well, speaking
1: a bit about the many, many things that you have mm. now done for BBC Sport and, and various other places, you've just come back from the women's Euros, yeah. which must have been incredible. I think women's football is one of the huge success stories in women's sport. We've seen like incredible growth mm. there at the moment. What Over your sort of career doing
2: this, what kind of changes have you seen in that? Well, it's the first time I've presented football. So for me, it was a massive opportunity. And, and you know, I said... About my training, taking me out of my comfort zone. This year was the first year for 20 something years that I haven't presented racing. So ITV got the contract at the beginning of the year, and I'm I'm not in the ITV team, which is fine because actually, it forced me to look at what what do I care about, what do I want to do, and obviously women's sport is a I have tried and campaigned on behalf of women's sport for many years, but. To get the chance to present women's football, the biggest sport in this country, football is generally the biggest capacity for growth. Because I think a lot of girls in a lot of schools don't realise they could have a career in football. So it's, there's all that untapped potential. And as you say, the, the starting of this blossoming of the game, in terms of investment, you know, Manchester City doing what they're doing, and Arsenal still being a, a really strong and active, Chelsea also having a really good setup, and other clubs trying to emulate then. It's a very exciting time and an England team that had that come back from the World Cup having finished third an England team that, that knew that on their best day they could actually beat anybody in the world and an England team that went there with a real hope and chance of winning the title. Now it didn't work out that way but until the semi-final they played such exciting football and people got to know them and Jodie Taylor became a star and she did win the golden boot but they could actually name Steph Horton and Lucy Bronze and Fran Kirby and there were suddenly players that you you knew a bit more about and people started to care and for me the the key to sport is it well, broadcasting sport is give people a reason to care this is not just about a result, and it 's not just about kicking the ball it 's about the characters, the personalities on the pitch and, and with men 's football obviously it 's being talked about all the time you unfortunately you can 't not care because it is the constant conversation and it doesn 't matter whether it 's a conversation about it's more often than not it 's about money it 's conversations about will a player be transferred how much for how much is he earning you know is he injured, how much damage will that do to the club and I think women's, women's football has a chance to be um, better than that, actually. And I think there's a lot about women's football that men's football could learn from and benefit from. And what was lovely about being out in the Netherlands, I walked on the Sunday of the final, so it was the Netherlands against Denmark in the final, and I walked with the fan walk from Enschede. I didn't go the whole way to the stadium, but I did a significant part of it. And there were thousands of people around me, and mo- most of them dressed in orange, but a fair few dressed in red and white and yeah, with big Viking horns on. You know, the Danes were there in force. And it was joyful. And it felt safe and warm and friendly. And you could not do that at a men's football com- tournament. Certainly not if England fans are around. And there was a real feeling, I think, of the beauty and the purity of what football could, could be in a better world, what it could be and should be. Is that because women are just better than men? <laughs> I think it's because... that I actually feel sorry for a lot of male football fans because most male football fans are not violent, are not homophobic, are not... You know, do not go to a match to literally sit and taunt the opposition mm. fans. There are... You go to some matches. Let's say you went to Spurs Arsenal. Mm. There would be a section of fans who are there only to, to chant abuse at their rival fans. And I don't... I don't understand that. So there's something very very stone age about that to me and that small group of people completely tainted Mm. for everyone else, I think the vast majority of football fans are perfectly decent human beings and it's it's very expensive to follow men's football and I think women's football will get a a bigger and bigger audience because it's good to watch because you're starting to know the characters because the women's super league is going to get better and better you've got you know really good players from abroad coming a lot of them were actually I mean we've got some good American players coming but also there were a lot of those Dutch players play in our league and it was really interesting to me to see all these names that I thought oh she plays for Arsenal, she plays Chelsea, Van der Sanden, who was fantastic all the way through for the Dutch, plays for Liverpool, and Liverpool aren't a particularly strong force in women's football, but you know you can see her, and that's, you know, I think that's really exciting, and, and you know i feel the same way about women's tennis the better joe conter gets and the more consistent she is at grand slams the more we care about the her opponents because the more we know about them and that's part of the you know you've got to make it an intense experience sport rewards you the more you know and you look at the world championships the athletics and that women's 4x100 team and the men's 4x1 they're really young it's a really exciting time and for all the doom and gloom of, oh, you know, Mo Farah's retiring, Greg Rutherford's injured, Jess Ennis Hill has retired, there's suddenly this new band. They were youngsters when London 2012 was happening and they are now the ones who are going to be standing on the podiums instead of carrying kit. And that, I think, is really exciting. I love I love that feeling of fresh growth on the trees, you know. There's a lot happening at the moment and, it, yeah, as you say, it's, it's not just... Um it's not just women's football,
1: but I thought it's quite interesting. I'm sure you'd have seen this the other day. There was, a, uh, there was an event for the Grenfell Disaster yeah. Fund, and I think it was Jackie Oatley actually was uh, chairing yeah. it or something like that, and, uh, and Arsene Wenger, uh, the Arsenal manager, was on the, on the panel, and he was asked a question about female managers. Do we think there'll be female managers in the Premier League anytime soon? And he said yes, he thought there would be.
2: What do you think about that? I would love, I would love, Kelly Smith, for example, who's going through her coaching badges at, at the moment, and we've got a year to go before she's fully qualified. The greatest England striker ever. M- more goals than, than any England footballer, m- male or female. And she was an Arsenal stalwart, but also played in America. I think a lot of the the good female players have more, have a broader experience and a broader life experience. Kelly had to work... Nearly all her life because professionalism only happened at the end of her career, a bit, a bit, a bit like Charlotte Edwards in cricket same thing they 're both they are the pioneers who, who unfortunately themselves haven 't benefited from it, but get a huge amount of satisfaction of what they created and the level they raised the game to to allow it to be considered professional and Then the investment came in, and now the players are are paid and, and they 're not paid. <laughs> in terms of men in cricket or football obviously the pay is is, you can't compare it but it's a start I don't want women's football to turn into men's football on any level I think women's cricket is a really good model and full credit to Claire Connor at the ECB who who was a great player herself and an England captain and she's come through into a really important role of organising it Judy Murray believes that is the key to successful women's sport, you've got to have women in those controlling positions where they're making the decisions. So whether that's coaching, managing, or chief exec, that, or organising the schedule, I mean, God, the schedule for the Women's Super League and the promotion of it and the regularity of the dates and times of kickoff is terrible. It's really terrible. You can't, you know, you've got to give people, you know, just give them a, a structure and a timetable. Let them know when these things are happening. Because you can't just guess... And, oh, yeah, you might might get a game. Yeah, turn up at four, see what's happening. No, it doesn't work like that. Anyway, to get back to your point, yes, I, I would love to see women in more powerful roles across football. Ian Wright was out with us in the Netherlands, part of the Channel 4 team, and he was very upset that the whole England bench was male and we looked at other teams and that certainly wasn't the case with germany or or the dutch and he said you know he said i want he's got young daughters he said i want my girls to feel that they can have a career in football that's not necessarily just on the pitch but actually if they're a nutritionist or a physio or a coach that there's a job for them and men have got the jobs everywhere so he said keep women's football special make make it at least You you can get a job in women's football as a woman. You've got a better chance. And Vera Powell, who who had um, played for Holland for 14 years, managed them and then managed Scotland actually for six years, she is very concerned that she thinks a lot of second-rate men are coming into women's football in coaching roles because they're not getting where they want to in men's football and she thinks that they are bringing in very bad habits. And actually, you watch England against the Netherlands, that semi-final, I've never seen the England women dive as much as they did. And some of it's out of desperation. They're trying to get a penalty. They're chasing the game. But Vera said she won't have a player in her side who dives. She said, I will not select them again, and they know that. The France game, I was so impressed that one of the French strikers could have gone down twice in the box, and she didn't. She stayed on her feet, and I thought, good on you, because actually I think women's football should try and uphold the standards of football as it was invented and created and again kind of show this is the way it should be done so we can play without cheating we can play without rioting we can play without homophobic chanting we can play without abusing the referee look at this this is this is the beautiful game because there is, I think there's
1: kind of a level of integrity to the women's game that just you just don't really see, and it, it is things like the money and 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 I think you know personally I think there's a whole load of other issues about young men in football and and the pressures on young men and the yeah. and the lack of guidance they get and things like that. I don't think it. I sort of feel it's a bit of a lazy rhetoric to just be like. You know, male oh. footballers are wankers or oh, whatever. No,
2: absolutely, and, and they're not. And I think a lot of clubs do a hell of a lot more in the, it, you know, within their local community that they don't get any credit for. I'm involved with the Saints Foundation, which is Southampton's charitable wing, and they do an awful lot. And I'm so impressed with it. And you think, God, your PR is really bad because nobody knows you're doing this. And the players, you know, the players join in; they'll help out as well. I think they realise, you know, they a football club has massive tentacles into every part of society in its town or city and they obviously they tend to be urban but it reaches much further than any other organisation does. Much further than the church would or could, even did probably in Victorian times. The football club is it, They, they, and everybody wants to be connected to it. So they can be a huge force for good and I think in most cases they try to be. But again, it is the few that, that taint pee in the pool.
1: <laughs> I read your book, The racehorse Who Doesn't Gallop, but did notice that Southampton were mentioned a bit in that. Yeah. Is that your team then? It is,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, my, my brother is a mad keen Southampton fan and my nephews and my niece are very are very into it and, and I, I've just gotten the new season shirts actually so they'll be excited by that but I don't go that often I mean it's funny I really enjoyed watching women's football this summer and I might, I just might find I don't know whether I'm going to find it quite frustrating to watch men's football now <laughs> they pass to the wrong team so often I don't know why would they do yeah. it's like they <laughs> pass to the right side but it is quite a frustrating sport to, as a spectator and I think that creates a certain tension in the crowd as well, because not there aren't that many goals unless it's Arsenal Leicester, obviously it's four three. But you know, generally speaking, there is a feeling of constant tension for 90 minutes. And, and
1: it's kind of all the bad stuff that goes with it as well. Right? I yeah. don't want to mention the the V word, Virgil van Dyke. For our listeners who may not be massively familiar with the transfer market, but he's your superstar defender who looks like he's he's off you know things like that and all of the money and yeah. the the
2: stuff around the transfers
1: and Obviously the lack it's of regard it's, for
2: it's business it's all a business and it's not a very nice business most of the time and luckily m- most most sport still maintains a core of human endeavor of people trying to be better than other people and pushing their bodies to the limit to to try to achieve something that kind of you thought was impossible and and i get suddenly there are really enlightening moments like the women's relay team watching the men's relay team winning gold and there's a really really good video actually on the bbc sport website and those four girls who are all young and they're all in their early 20s and they will be our sprinters for the future having run the race of their lives to win a silver medal then standing watching the men win gold and their their excitement and that feeling that embodiment of team spirit i love that and that's what makes me still believe in it all despite the there are there are bad people doing bad things in in every single walk of life unfortunately and sport has its fair share because it's a very valuable commodity and I still, I still don't understand. I watched Icarus the other night on Netflix. And it's all about um, the guy who did it, did it uh, wanted to show the effect of taking performance-enhancing drugs. And he was doing this big um, amateur cycle race that happens after the Tour de France. And if he took this sort of program of drugs, could he get a faster time? Anyway, within the course of it, he gets in contact with the guy in Russia who is essentially responsible for, for doping all of the Russian athletes. And he's then embroiled in this story of Russia being kicked out of the Olympics and the athletics, um, the IAAF and Sebco upholding the ban and all the other sports retracting. Anyway, it was a. It, and the guy, R- Rodjanov, I think he's called, is now under witness protection in, in the USA. And you watch it and you think, and what was the point of that? Because really and truly, the Russians were swapping out samples at the Winter Olympics to ensure they weren't caught cheating. And they were winning, and they did, you know, they won a tonne of medals at that Winter Olympics in Sochi. But you think, was that really worth it? And I, I constantly think about Lance Armstrong. It was the Tour de France... When, when, when did the Tour de France become such a big business that that should have ever been worth it?
1: Yeah, I don't want to say anything libelous here, but let's, Lance Armstrong's a, uh, a character in inverted commas, isn't he? I think uh, yeah. his motivation may be slightly different to the, the everyday...
2: And I, I think in his head he wasn't cheating because everybody was doing it. So I think it was such a, it, it had to become such a tainted sport that he just thought, well, I can't, this doesn't work clean. Therefore, I tell you what, if I got the chance to interview him, I'd love to. I would love. To. I'd be scared to interview him. <laughs> yeah, but that's good. You've got to feel a bit scared. I interviewed Mike Tyson. That was scary. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was actually quite
1: scary. I can see you've got both your ears still, so, that's, <laughs> so it's, it's not gone that badly. So, Claire, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your book now. The first book, got a new book coming out, The Racehorse Who Disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, I have read The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop, and it's, it is the most charming book. It's such a charming story for so many reasons. And I was reading it. The main character Charlie. So when I first heard about this book actually, I automatically assumed Charlie was a boy and Charlie is not Charlie's a little girl. And I wondered if
2: Charlie had a sort of a gender neutral name. Was that on yeah. purpose? Yeah, definitely on purpose. And probably I'm meant to be writing a book by the I will write a book by the end of August, just a short book, and I think again I'll do that and I might have a Frankie or a George or But yeah, it is deliberately gender neutral and the and, and she has short hair. Now, she's a 10-year-old girl with short hair. I promise you, and I go into a lot of schools, you cannot find a girl between the age of 7 and 27 with short hair. It is so hard. And actually, the football was really interesting because the only two I saw with short hair were Shanice van der Sanden for the Dutch and Fran Kirby for England. I think there is an underlying issue there of, of femininity equals long hair, and whether it's because of princesses in cartoons and books or whether it's because everybody wants to look like... Kate Middleton I don't know but they all want long hair and you can't be a girl and have short hair and I and I just think god I mean I'm not I'm not sort of fighting for it because I've got short hair it's nothing to do with that it's I I remember looking at our school photo and everyone had different hair we all had dreadful hair but everybody had different hair we didn't all look the same and apparently <laughs> teachers say you want to look at the facebook page you know profile page they all look the same and i just want to stand up for individuality don't be afraid to be different don't be afraid to to stand out from the crowd we don't have to all look the same and you don't have to try and pursue some sort of ideal that you think is perfect femininity why can't it just be what you are
1: so one of the things i thought about the book. I mean, I had a lot of thoughts about it actually because it, it could have been a very basic kind of like little girl likes to ride horses. You know that those books exist. I used to read them when I was little. I used to horse ride when I was little, and I had two older brothers as
2: well. So a lot of it oh, kind right. of like so this spoke to you, Jen. Yeah. This was you. Yeah, no, it
1: did it. A lot of it kind of resonated with me. One of the things I loved about it was that it celebrates attributes yeah. in the main character Charlie that are not. Often seen as us, they're not celebrated as feminine attributes. Like the the concept of her being a winner, like yeah. her dad says, oh, I knew you were going to be a winner. I knew you were going to be strong and things like that." That yeah. we don't celebrate in women. I don't think enough. Yeah, and
2: she's a problem solver too. So she and and she has to find it. And her two older brothers are really annoying, and they tease her all the time, and they body shame her a lot yes. about her big legs. You know, and her mum has to give her a talking to about the women you know with powerful legs. Says so to her, "Look at you know Boudica and." And Queen Victoria and Hillary Clinton and Catherine the Great and obviously I wrote it before um, the American election, so I wondered whether to just swap out Hillary Clinton. I thought no, leave her in there. She's got powerful legs and Beyonce. You know, look at these women. Serena Williams. Yeah. That you you can be big and strong and powerful and that's okay and, and we've gone through these different phases in history you know female beauty used to be that it used to be round and curvy and you know big breasts big thighs big bum that was beautiful and with the phase that we're in now is is the opposite of that it's it's very 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 thin really really impossible to for many people to achieve so I wanted her to, to to have those sort of fears that that i do think all girls have and a lot of boys have of what will people think? They'll be looking at me. Do, do, and, how, and the other thing with her is the understanding of, a, of an animal. How, how do I get inside this horse's head to make him want to gallop? To make him want to? How, how do I try and solve his insecurity? And in doing so, herself get stronger. And actually, in the, the second book, the one that comes out in September, The racehorse Who disappears, she has to deal with fear and anger. She has to deal with quite a lot of anger. And again, how do you manage that? And and she's, she has to be brave. And she is brave. She's a brave little girl. And that's... I, I wanted... And her, obviously her brother's a, a very simplified version of of my, ne- my two nephews. And, and they've got a younger sister. But Harry and Larry are, are... They come up with stupid ideas. But they're constantly fighting each other. Because boys do that I mean I think so the thing about the powerful legs is something I was going to pick
1: up on because yeah. again this is uh, you know li- little Jen uh, <laughs> as a child or a teenager my nickname for my brothers and their friends was fat ass that's nice isn't it really? you know you're the only girl you're the youngest our sort of moment of bonding was over football in fact so watching the World Cup with them in 1998 and they sort of introduced me into that world as well
2: and I found the idea the way she's sort of like she earns their respect yes Yes. And, and I think she also she finds their strengths and and you know, one of them's very techie and into all this computer stuff and that's helpful, particularly in the second book, really helpful. Um, yeah, they, she does she does earn their respect and I think they become very protective of her. And, and you see boys do that too. I mean I see I see my nephews do that. They'll they'll tease Flora and tease her and tease her and tease her and then if somebody else threatens her, straight in to defend her. Um, so yeah there's a lot of you know observed truth i think in it i I think it's a genuinely really lovely story it made me a bit teary actually um there's
1: a shocking admission for me an almost 35 year old but the other thing about it is it draws on a lot of sort of sports knowledge as well so there's quite a lot of facts in there like interesting facts about sport and it's like a very nice way to introduce that to people who might be reading it just because it's a book about a little girl with a horse was that
2: a conscious thing as well yes definitely so quite a lot of olympic sports and also a bit of understanding the psychology of of sports people so whether it's victoria pendleton who i reference fair bit or charlotte dujardin and in the next book i talk a lot about kate richardson walsh and the hockey hockey team and maddie hinch and all of that and how you win matches that you're not expected to win um and yeah i do think there are a lot of lessons from sport and i like putting in things that are factually factually satisfying because I've always said facts to my friend. Everyone loves, stat. <laughs> Everyone loves a stat, and I'm quite nerdy on that. So, yeah, I do, I do enjoy doing that. Um, and, yeah, actually, in, in the, the next book, obviously, there, there are references to Shergar, because he did disappear in mysterious circumstances. And that story was the inspiration for it, because it has happened, you know? It has happened. Yeah, I like doing that, and I, and I enjoy reading books that draw on real history. And for me, sport is, is history, a more interesting history to me than the history of wars. And we spend all that time in school studying wars and men fighting men over territory usually. And, and actually just as interesting to study sport and I think just as instructive. You do reference
1: in the first book the likes of Beyonce and Victoria Pendleton. Now, Beyonce is my spirit guide of sorts. She doesn't know it. Uh, if you're listening, Beyonce, thanks for that. Who is your role model or your kind of who do you admire? Who do you look to for inspiration?
2: Um, I think through my l- early twenties and and probably still now, Ellen DeGeneres. I would look at and think, God, l- you look at everything she went through, and she she says some very sensible things. And um, I like her show because I think it's kind and it's funny. And I think she has an incredibly high sort of moral standard and she can pull off the selfie of all selfies as well at the Oscars and was the best Oscar host ever. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I look at her and think, gosh, that she, she is someone I, I admire hugely. And then I have other people who are my imaginary best friends, obviously. Kate Winslet does, she is, really. Yeah, yeah. We were meant to do something together in November. And in the end, actually, I, I managed to make best friends with Helen Mirren instead. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool, actually. But I was still upset that Kate wasn't there because I felt, you know, we'd be on holiday now. You know, just as friends, just, you know, hanging out probably Christmas as well, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't see why not. Yeah. but if we make it onto the national trust treasure list you see we can then be friends kate if you're listening what
1: claire's a national treasure come on (laughs) sort it out claire thank you
2: so so much it's been an absolute joy to talk to you when is your book coming out september the 17th or 19th sometime around then and it's called the racehorse who disappeared the second one and the first one is is absolutely brilliant and uh, buy it,
1: read it to your children, read it to your little girls, your little boys. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank
2: you.
0: That was my full interview with Claire Balding, which I did while I was at the Edinburgh Fringe a few weeks ago in August. Hope you enjoyed it. If you liked it, you may be interested to know that on the Standard Issue Podzine, we talk about women's sport or rather I talk about women's sport every week in my regular section, Jenny Off The Blocks. So if you like this, then please do have a little listen to some of our other pod scenes and also some of the other Sunday Chops episodes in which thus far I've spoken to Judy Murray, I've spoken to Paula Maguire, who's about to swim the coast of mainland Britain. So yeah, please get in touch if you want to get in touch, if you've got anything to say about women's sport. I am on the Twitter, at InspiraGen.